0: while our kids are heading out i do want to point out that since we are in the season of advent these are advent candles they're not timers and i point that out because last week i'm told that they got dangerously close to this probably flammable material here now just in case this week we do have a trained firefighter who is a part of our safety and security committee sitting right here in his firefighter red shirt. And he will save us all when the sermon goes too long for the candles. But I have faith in them. We got slow, special slow burn candles this week. Kidding, we didn't. But um, anyway, we're excited uh, that it's Advent season. Excited to be back in God's word. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning. As my notes slowly load, we've got two more sermons left in our Ephesians series after today. Lord willing, we will have spent... 38 Sundays in the book of Ephesians, we covered the first three chapters in the spring and summer of 2021, for those of you who remember that, we were actually still meeting down in the gym and fellowship hall when we went through those three chapters uh, right after the COVID pandemic, and then we took some time off and studied other things and came back to finish the book uh, after Easter this year, they're getting me dialed in slowly, sorry, Um, And as I look back on all of that this week and thought about what Paul is doing as he moves toward the conclusion of this letter, uh, something came to my mind. We just celebrated my favorite holiday a couple of weeks ago, Thanksgiving. Christmas is wonderful and all, but Thanksgiving has always been and will likely always be my favorite holiday because it combines four of my favorite things, food, family, football, and, and, and food. I love Thanksgiving, uh, and one of the things that happens on Thanksgiving, not like my highlight of the day, but you know, in the morning, my wife always likes to watch the uh, the Christmas parade and the Macy's parade that comes on TV, and that was led by the Mizzou Marching Band, you know, yeehaw this year, that's awesome. Uh, we, didn't really get to, we actually didn't get to watch that part this year, but after the parade, so like that dead space between parade and football, the dog show comes on, and... I mean I'm not like a do- like we have do- I'm not a dog person some of you are dog people. I'm not really a dog person. we have two dogs and if you're just like an awesome dog person, I'll drop one off at your house later today. Just let me know but I'm fascinated by the dog show because they come out and you know they have all these different breeds of dogs and they parade them around the little arena there I think it happens in Philadelphia or Pittsburgh or somewhere like that and um, and they parade them around and they judge them. I didn't get to watch it on TV this year but I found out later the winner of Best in Show was a little French bulldog named Winston. And if you're into flat-nosed animals, he's the cutest thing you've ever seen. Look at that. He even smiles. I don't know how they train him to do that. But Winston and all the other dogs would have trotted around the arena, and then they would have come before the judge, and the judge would, you know, get down at their level or put them up on a table, and, and they would poke at them. And there's probably a method to this. I don't know what it is. I think it's just try to annoy the dog as much as you possibly can. They poke them. They prod them. They check them from every angle. And then they decide which one is the winner. And I know there's probably a criteria for that. Again, really, I'm just you know turkey coma waiting on football, so I don't. But but it's neat to watch on TV. But I thought about this week that this week as Paul is taking this Christian experience, and he's really looking at it from every angle. He's inspecting what it means to be a Christian in this fallen world. In these closing paragraphs of his letter to the Ephesians. He's talking about what it means to imitate Christ as we live among lost people. He, he talks about what it means to be light in darkness. We all lived in darkness once upon a time. And back in chapter 2, Paul talked about how we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Our sin, it, it separated us from God. And, and God, uh, instead of giving us what we deserve, he, he brought us back from death. He brought us to life through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, Paul tells us back in chapter 2. But God made us alive with Christ. In fact, the Bible teaches that anyone anywhere who repents of their sins and places their faith in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation can be saved. That was Paul's starting point in the book. And that's still true today, by the way, for those of you that are within the sound of my voice who are not Christians. The, the gist of the message for you today is to turn away from your sin, from your sinful lifestyle, turn to Jesus, and God will save you. And when he does that, he... He drives you into community with other believers, Paul teaches in Ephesians. Because of that, we've seen Paul talk about how to love one another in a local church. And then he brought it into the home. He talked about our marriage relationship. He talked about taking those things that we learned. So as we've studied this letter, we saw that the first three chapters were essentially doctrine, what we believe. The last three chapters are how we apply that belief. And Paul applied it within our marriage. He applied it within our parenting. What does it mean? For how you parent your children. What does it mean for as a child, how you relate to your parents? He's talked about our closest family relationships. But there's one area where we're going to spend a ton of time that Paul hasn't really hit yet. And that's the area of vocation. How do we glorify the God? How do we glorify God in the way that we do the thing that He has called us to do to earn a living? Let's read Ephesians 6, 5 through 10 together. And then we'll talk about how we do that. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 5, Paul writes, Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, do God's will from your heart serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord and masters. Treat your slaves the same way without threatening them because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no favoritism with him. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before your word today asking that Uh, God, you would, through your Holy Spirit, help us learn to submit to it, learn to love it, learn to lay aside the old person that we used to be, dead in our sin, before our salvation, selfish, unaware of your goodness, seeking to please other people, seeking to please ourselves and not you, Father. We we pray that you would help us to grow out of that and into what you've already called us to be, a, a people who... Seek not our own glory. Who seek not to be adored by other people, but we seek to glorify you, to adore you, and to serve other people. And to serve them well, not for our glory, but for yours, Father. Teach us what it means to do that from your word today. That we know in a gathering of this size there are likely those within the sound of, of this prayer who, who are not saved, who do not know Jesus Christ in a way that leads to salvation. And so, God, I pray that today would be the day that your Holy Spirit brings their dead hearts to life so that their work does matter, so that their lives take on a new purpose, the purpose for which you created humanity. God, your own glory, Father, help us to be a church complete, God, a church of, of people who do seek your glory above all else. Or those of us that belong to you, we pray that, that from your word today, we would, we would leave with a, an affection for the things that you've called us to do when it comes to our vocation and comes to our work. That teaches us to have a, a biblical view of the way that many of us spend 30 or 40 or 50 hours each week. God, for those unable to work who would love to be working right now, God, I pray peace for them as we study this passage. I pray that they would, that they would see the other things that they do in life through this same lens, God, that, Lord, we can apply ourselves in, in everything that we do in such a way that you would be glorified by it, Father. Lord, give us wisdom from your Mary word today, we pray in your Son's name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, Paul's original audience, the church at Ephesus, apparently included a number of slaves. It's, it's impossible really to know how many slaves there were in the Roman Empire during Paul's day. Scottish theologian William Barclay noted that there were around 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire during this period. But it's really almost impossible to prove one way or another we have anecdotal evidence that in some places there were more slaves than there are people who were free. And so Paul is is writing into a world and specifically into a congregation where slavery was a very real part of life. And it would be easy for us and likely much more comfortable for us to say these verses just apply to the way we live as workers and, and figurative servants now and just to move on. But. We wouldn't be doing the Bible justice, nor our own national or denominational history justice if we do that. It's right to acknowledge that we are in a sinful world in which at least we must tell the full story, especially when the scar of the Civil War and the institution of slavery uh, are present in our culture, and they're especially present in a Southern Baptist church. We can't ever forget that the organization, the Southern Baptist Convention, which uh, with which we're in friendly cooperation. That means we we are participants in a network of churches that is much larger than us. And that network of churches was founded in 1845 when slaveholding states were upset that a mission board in the northeast would not send missionaries who were slave owners. So they took their ball and went home. They formed their own mission sending agency that would, among other things, send slaveholding missionaries. Now. Today, we recognize that theology is broken, that that in and of itself is sinful. As a convention, the Southern Baptist Convention, we've corporately repented of that theology, of that racism. We've put safeguards in place to make sure that we don't err in that direction again. In fact, the very churches that founded the Southern Baptist Convention would be expelled today due to their views on race. But church, I say that and at the same time point out that we can't think that we're... Better than those folks we can't think that we're immune to broken theology in fact we're not even that far removed from racism did you realize that just over a month ago a man died whose father a man here right here in this country died whose father was a slave his New York Times obituary began this way Daniel Smith who was believed to be the last surviving child of an enslaved person and who over a long and eventful life, witnessed firsthand many of the central moments of the African-American experience, died October 19th in Washington. He was 90 years old. Now, Mr. Smith's father, Abram Smith, was born into slavery during the Civil War and was 70 when his much younger wife, Clara, gave birth to Daniel back in 1932. Seventy! And he had a child. Merry Christmas to him that year, I imagine. Never too late, folks. It's funny, the men are laughing, the wives not so much. <laughs> My wife especially, not laughing. Okay. And while it's impossible to know for certain whether Daniel Smith was the last living child of an enslaved person, historians who've studied this type of thing think that he likely was. Emancipation happened all the way back in 1865, but I tell you that story just to point out that the tendrils of slavery and brokenness in this regard in our country stretched out much further. And we need to be acutely aware of it. And we specifically need to be aware of what the Bible says about it. You see, slavery was the reality across the entire 1,600 years or so that the Bible came together. It's present in the Old Testament, described there, not endorsed there. The Bible never endorses slavery. It just acknowledges that it was the context in which scripture was written in fact in Paul's context slavery wasn't racial it was it was brutal but it wasn't based on skin color Barclay quotes aristotle saying that a slave is a li- this is a, a you know a greek philosopher saying a slave is a living tool just as a tool is an inanimate slave that was the prevailing attitude towards slaves in the world of the ephesian church If someone became extremely poor or they were uh, overrun with debt, the only thing left for them to sell was their labor. And so in agreement for paying off debt, often, uh, usually with the promise of the provision that one day they would earn their freedom, slaves would sell themselves to a wealthy person. We actually see this played out uh, later on in in Paul's letter to uh, Philemon uh, later in the New Testament. That's not to say it was a good system and that it was ever part of God's plan, but it was the reality of Paul's day and age, and that's why it's present in our text. And just so that we are very clear, the Bible does condemn the entire premise of any form of slavery. The entire biblical ethic can be summarized as do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's, Love your neighbor as yourself. It, it calls us to treat each other as brothers and sisters and tells us in Christ that there's neither slave nor free. And if the entire world adopted that view of humanity, it would undo all forms of slavery, which are still present today, by the way, just because it's not a present issue, a visible issue in our culture right now. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist in the world. It still does, and in fact is growing in many places. And so we need to recognize as God's people that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. There's no room for there, or any view that puts one person, one group of people, one race, one gender, one anything above another. J.D. Greer, former president of the SBC, said it well. He said there's one race, human, one class, sinner, one hope, Jesus, one future, resurrection, one fortune, the eternal riches of Christ. And we live with an eye toward those eternal riches. But as Paul makes clear in today's text, God meets us right where we're at in this broken world. And he gives us wisdom to live in it in a way that glorifies him. You see, God's people work to tear down evil institutions like slavery. In fact, everywhere slavery has been abolished, it has been God's people leading that charge. But first and foremost... Before he works in any sort of social institution or government or anything like that, God works in the hearts of individuals. Yes, he works in culture, but that always comes through one changed heart at a time. And those who are living under the uh, oppression of slavery are actually given hope in this text. They're given hope for something better than the slavery, than the oppression that they currently live in. they're reminded that they can glorify God right where they're at. So we're thankful not to live in a time and place where slavery is as commonplace as it was in Paul's day. But that doesn't mean this passage has no significance for us. We don't read a text like this and go, we're not slaves or masters. We're good to go on this one. Let's get out of here before the candles burn down. That's not really helpful. That's not how we read scripture. It does have significance for us. In fact, the heart of the relationship Paul is addressing here is vocational. It's about Work. The word vocation comes from a Latin word that means calling. And here's, here's the big, bold truth that I hope that we leave here more convinced of today. It's that God cares about your work. God cares that you work. God cares how you work. He cares when you work. And he cares about you being away from work when work is over. Fortune magazine found that the average worker leaves 4.6 vacation days, almost a full work week on the table every year. Church, don't brag about not using your vacation. If God is kind enough to put you in a place where you have vacation to use, use it, be with your family, do something, rest, use those hours to serve somebody else if you don't want to use them for rest. They're going to pay you to go away. Unless you're a college football coach, that never happens. Thanks. Um, If they're going to pay you to go away, go away, go home, do something, but don't leave, that's, Sorry, that's a small pet peeve of mine. Use the vacation that God blesses you with, if not to go somewhere to serve somebody else. But God does care about your work. Let's say that you begin your work life, your professional life, when you're 22 and you work until you're 65. So think about some math for a minute. I know that it's not a good thing to do math on a Sunday morning, right? But let's let's think. Now, some of you start earlier and you work later. You maybe start earlier than 22, retire after 65, but just ballpark figures. If you start at those ages and work 40 hours a week, taking a couple of weeks off per year, because remember, you're taking your vacation, um, you will have worked almost 90,000 hours in your life. That's over 3,700 full days of your life that you're going to spend working. We'd be foolish that God, to think that God doesn't care about a chunk of our life that is that big. Like the judge looking over Winston, the English bulldog, right? God cares about every little angle of our life, every facet of who we are. God cares. So the idea that you can be focused on God at church and maybe even at home, but you're just working a job to bring home a paycheck, and God doesn't factor into that all that much, that's, that's just, that doesn't make sense biblically. God cares deeply about your work and about how you work. And, and I realize a, a big portion of our congregation today, right, is people who are not of working age yet, your kids, your teenagers. And so, like, hey, I don't, I'm out on this one too, right? I don't have a job. I don't work yet. Um, well, well, kids, your vocation, many of you at this point, is found in the classroom. Oh, man, that's not what you came here to hear, is it? But at this point in your life, when I say work, You can just substitute school for that because that's the one thing that God has allowed you at this point in your life to devote those hours, that time to. And that's also where you develop much of the ethic, much of the work skill, the work ethic that that God will use later in your life, not just to provide for you but to bless other people. And so, kids, you're you're learning the beginnings of this even now. And so as I talk to the older people about work, hear it as school or schoolwork for you because that's where you can apply this as well. So Paul, what he does in the text is give us three reasons, three motivations to work for God's glory. First, we work as to the Lord, we see in the text. Paul makes it clear that our work, whether we're the boss or the the worker, the master or the slave in the text, we should do everything as to the Lord. And here's where the reality of the first century meets the reality of the day. If, If slaves are to show respect to their masters, How much more ought we show respect to those who are in authority over us in the context of our job? These slaves, they had no rights. Their masters often were brutal in their treatment of them. And Paul says, no matter how they treat you, if they're a good master or a bad master, respect them, honor them. Well, man, I don't know how bad you have it at work, but you're free to quit. You lose some things. But you can go home at the end of the day. You have freedom. You actually get money for your job. Paul is writing to slaves who got nothing but really to continue living to work. They didn't get anything for their work. And Paul is telling them, hey, even if your master treats you horribly in fear and trembling, just as though you were working for Christ himself, obey them not fear and trembling as though we're groveling before them, but, but a respect for their authority. Because if we believe that, that we serve a sovereign God, it is that sovereign God who has placed that person for that moment in authority over us. And so by submitting to them, we're submitting to more than just them, because they might not, in reality, if we're, if we're just talking about worldly terms, they may not deserve your respect. In fact, they may do some things that, That cause you to lose respect for them. But we're looking far beyond just that one relationship when we respect the folks God puts in authority over us. We're actually looking beyond them to God Himself, recognizing that God has seen fit for this person to be in authority over me in this regard for this time period. And so a way that I worship God, just like the way that Paul prescribed for these slaves to worship God, was to respect and obey the person in authority over them. It's not just external. Okay, external obedience that doesn't come from within, that that doesn't come with respect. It's actually the opposite most of the time. Paul even says we're to serve with a good attitude. So we should aim to work with joy. And again, you say that's easy for you to say, you don't know my job. You don't know how bad it is, and I don't, and you're right. But again, Paul is telling slaves to work with a good attitude. It's not fair being treated as property you're not being treated well the law even looked on slaves as property if anyone in the greco-roman world had right standing to have a bad attitude to think that life was awful it was a slave yet here paul is saying to the slaves in this ephesian congregation work with a good attitude as if the boss or the foreman or the principal or the teacher or the owner of the business was the lord himself because your work matters to god Church, do we devote ourselves to our work, to our vocation, as though we're devoting ourselves to God? It's it's fashionable now for employers to do performance reviews, right? I, you know, at the end of the year or or at the end of the fiscal year or whatever, you know, many employers will sit down with their employees and say, "This is how you did in the past year." It's an interesting concept. I, I actually read uh, some great lines this week that have supposedly been written on performance reviews and. Some of them were too good for me not to share with you since we're we're here today. One boss uh, wrote, this employee should go far, and the sooner he starts, the better. (laughs) His men would follow him anywhere, but only out of morbid curiosity. He works well when under constant supervision and cornered in a trap. This young lady has delusions of adequacy. By the way, don't use these. These are, not, these are not, and don't quote me on these. Uh, these are someone else. She sets low personal standards and then consistently fails to achieve them. <laughs> this is, uh, I, I debated this one. I'm just going to roll with it. Got a full six-pack but lacks the plastic thingy to hold it all together. <laughs> I hope that those were not written about Christians. I hope that those haven't shown up on any of your performance reviews. But the text does beg us to ask, doesn't it, what if Jesus were conducting our review? I mean, Paul says we're to work as unto Christ, so really he's he's the one we work for, much more than the name on the door, much more than the name of the company, much more than the boss. It's, It's the name of Christ that we are carrying into our vocation with us, and so as God's People, as representatives of God's kingdom, Christians should work as hard as anyone else, with more integrity than anyone else, in a way that glorifies the God who has sent us there in the first place. You're not at your job by accident. God has called you into the place That you're working. Let me just address those of you because I know that there are some here who who would love to be working now, but you're unable for a number of reasons. Some of it's health, some of it's other circumstances, um, and some of you are beyond your working years even. But you're not beyond your usefulness to God, or He wouldn't still have you here. And so, whatever it is that you are doing, this, this really is a text that has very broad application. Paul writes over in 1 Corinthians 10 that everything we do, we do for the glory of God. And so this applies to the way that we love our family. This applies to the way that we live in our neighborhood. This applies to the way uh, that we go shopping. This applies to everything that we do. We are to do it as though we are doing it for the Lord because really all of life belongs to God. And so as Paul is examining every facet of this life that we live, he reminds us that we're to work for Christ. Again, he does the thing that I love here so much. He doesn't just give us the command without giving us the reason. So, so why should we be motivated to work this way? Well, one reason in the text is that God rewards obedience. Verse 7, serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And Paul makes it clear that God is going to reward our work. It's as you labor for God, as you live out the gospel in your workplace, in your vocation, God is going to reward that. You know, one of the things we sometimes hear today is that you know, no good deed goes unpunished. And some of you have tried this, right? You've tried to be godly at work. You've tried to have integrity. You've tried to treat people well and it's gone horribly wrong. And that happens because we live in a fallen world. Because it's a world full of sinners. It's a world full of sin. It's a world full of injustice and inequity and And Paul, again, imagine him speaking this to slaves. That's what's so bold about this. They, They knew a bit about the principle of no good deed going unpunished, right? And yet he says to them, let me promise you something, Christian. Christian who is enslaved. Nothing that you do will go unrewarded from God. Not one cup of water, Jesus said elsewhere, given in my name, will go without reward from the Heavenly Father. That's a principle that we need to remember. We're in a situation where our, our vocation, where, where we haven't yet been fully rewarded for our faithfulness and our integrity, but we will be rewarded by our Heavenly Father. At the end of the year, when it's time for those reviews, when it's time for that promotion, when it's time for whatever, working the right way might not on this side of eternity earn you much of anything. In fact, it may get you fired. We need to face the reality that it's becoming harder and harder to maintain a Christian ethic, especially a social ethic, and work in a secular world today. So there's very likely coming a time when Christians will lose their jobs, lose their livelihood, perhaps lose their income, When non profits will lose their tax exempt status, when a number of things that have dominoes will fall, because we continue to believe and to preach what the Bible says Is true, and if we take what Paul says at face value here, we recognize that we take those losses, recognizing that our reward comes in a completely different way. It's not financial. It's not monetary. It's not an honor. It's not any of those things. No, our reward comes from God himself, and that's a reward that is never going to leave us with less than we had to start with, but at the same time, it's never promised on this side of eternity. we work for something much bigger than money, than acknowledgement, than any of those things. We work for the glory of God himself. And our last truth today is that our work ethic reflects our view of God. Look at verse 9 again. Paul writes "And Masters, treat your slaves the same way without threatening them because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no favoritism with him. Again, our work is a spiritual issue. Our living out the truth of this passage is a a function and measure of how much we trust God. How big our view of God is. In everything we do, Christ is our master. He's our employer. He's the one for whom we're working. And he's the one to whom we give an account. And that means that everything we do, every service that we render, is ultimately for and And important to Jesus himself. If we work in such a way that we're not doing our best. God knows you can fool your employer. In fact, some of us become good at it over time, right? If we're holding back, if we're procrastinating, if we're harboring bad attitudes. We know that those things aren't hidden from God. Sees those things often before we even recognize them to be true about ourselves. And because we recognize that our work is done in service to God, we know that if we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing, then we're actually not getting away with anything. If we're treating our coworkers poorly, God knows that. And you can probably get away with a lot of things on the human side, but in God's economy, no one gets away with anything ever. And so if we have a big view of God, we'll place a high value of importance on whatever work we're able to do. And if we don't, Probably try to hide things. We'll probably try to be one way publicly while being a completely different way in our mind. We'll we'll get done the things that we need to do to look like we're doing a good job, but on the inside, knowing that we could do more. We won't be proactive. We'll be reactive. You see, church, I'm thankful that God included this passage in Ephesians for us because you're going to spend, many of you have already spent a ton of time in the workplace. Whether you work alone, by yourself, with other people, whether you work in an office, a factory, whatever situation God has put you in, ask yourself why God has chosen to put you there. Pray, if you haven't already, about your vocation. Maybe you're miserable there. And that could be for a number of reasons. It could be because you've never approached that, pl- that workplace, that situation, with the right heart attitude. It could be because God is trying to move you on to something else. Maybe he's calling to tell you that now. <laughs> Sorry. But if that's a job offer, that'd be pretty cool. Um, I have no idea whose phone that was. So, The most important thing that you can do at your job is to glorify God. And you do that by working Well, if you have co-workers, if you have people that you regularly interact with as a part of your job, are you making disciples of those people? Are you an encouragement to them? Can they tell that your life is different than anybody around you? Recognize that God didn't put you there by accident. you work with lost people? Did you know that those lost people, God has seen fit to put a missionary in their life who knows the truth of the gospel for 40 hours each and every week? He's giving you those 90,000 hours just to speak the gospel truth to that one person, perhaps. And it might take every last minute for them to come to know the Lord. But don't stop. One of the things I would encourage all of you to pray about as we consider vocation, as we consider this thing that we spend so much of our lives doing is, are, are you really where God wants you to be? Teenagers and, and younger, have you as you chart the path for the next several years of your life, are you doing that with much prayer? Or are you doing that based on what many of us based our vocational decision on initially, right? What are the things that pay a lot? There's a lot of really miserable rich people out there that are not serving the Lord. Students, pray over what God would have you do. In fact, one of my prayers for us as a church, not just of students, but of family sitting here, is that we become a sending church, a church that sends out missionaries to other places, a church that sends out people to plant churches in other towns around here that, that have a deep gospel need. And if we're willing, if we're, if we're asking God to take us and apply us vocationally elsewhere, God will, God will do it. And that doesn't mean you have to be a pastor or a missionary. What it could mean for you college students, and we'll have more college students home in a couple of weeks, But, and I try to say this to them as I'm just talking to them informally, but, but as you're trying to figure out where you're going to go and work after college, don't just evaluate where you go based on which company offers you the most money. Find out where there's a gospel need. Find out where there's a church that needs people like you, and go and plant yourself in that community. Maybe not for your whole life, maybe for a couple of years. See what God does with it. Let God be involved in these vocational choices. Maybe you've been in a, in a place for 5 or 10 or 15 years, but you go, you know, I never really prayed about coming here. God has used me here, but God, is this really where you want me to be? God, can you apply me somewhere else more effectively for the kingdom? God, I'm willing. Yeah, I might have to take a pay cut. Yeah, I might have to change field, whatever. But God, I'm willing to go and to do whatever it is that you have called me to go and do. And I don't want to do it well. I want to do it with a strong work ethic. And I want to do it for your glory. C.T. Studd is the, the manliest name in missions. I won't tell you his full story. But he was an Englishman. And he was famous. Uh, he was a cricket player. Uh, cricket is like, I don't know, baseball got drunk. I don't know what cricket is. But it's, it's a weird sport that they play in different countries. And, uh, and he was a famous cricketer probably, uh, in England, and uh, essentially was, you know, in place to be their leader in the Cricket World Cup and all these things, gave it all up, famous athlete, and he said, I'm not, not playing cricket anymore, I'm going to the mission field, and, and he went into relative obscurity, at least as far as culture is concerned, left behind a fortune to go and to serve. Fiscally, it was a terrible decision. Physically, it was a terrible decision as he went from a very comfortable life to a very painful life. But because he was willing to go where God called him, there are now hundreds, probably thousands of people who have experienced the love of Christ because one man was willing to sacrifice career and fame to go and serve Elsewhere, that's unlikely that God is going to call you to a remote jungle somewhere, but he might call you to a terrible neighborhood. He might call you to a different town. He might call you to a different spot. He might just call you to a different spot in your particular company. But allow yourself to be used by God for his glory in the field, whatever vocation it is that he's called you to. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, thank you for loving us today. Thank you for uh, allowing us, uh, allowing our work to matter, Father. Lord, if at the end of the day, a paycheck was what we got out of work, Father, that would ultimately amount to nothing. Because God, we know how this world is. We know how everything material ends in this life. Yet everything that we place so much value on today will be consumed by fire. So Lord, if we spend our 3,700 days devoted to just piling up as much as we can. God, we end our life with nothing. So God, thank you for your truth and your word that teaches us that our time spent working matters not because of what we earn monetarily or earn in the eyes of this world but because we glorify you. God, that's something that that lasts for eternity, God. You, you will not allow good to go unrewarded. And so, Father, teach us not just how we can work well, but how we can use the things that we gained from our work for your kingdom. That helps us to view ourselves as disciples first, missionaries first, people with a story of a Savior. Let us view ourselves first as that and then as teachers or nurses or welders or construction workers or whatever it is that we do vocationally, God, help us be first your people before we're anything else. Help us to glorify you in the way that we work, in the way that you go to school, in the way that we spend such a big chunk of our lives. We pray in your son's name and all God's people said, amen.